Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are very pleased to welcome back Dr. David Field. Here, he and Peter Lightheart will discuss our recent Easter term intensive course on paths to human maturity. They'll talk a little bit about Freud, psychoanalysis, and what business Christians have not only thinking about consciousness, but exploring it. Before we jump in, we do want to invite you to take a look at those show notes. There you'll find a link to our YouTube channel where we post weekly videos on Bible, liturgy, and culture. And you'll also find a few of the articles from this week, including a very helpful one from Lindsay Tolufson on parenting during the coronavirus. Also remember that we have our upcoming Theopolis Fellows program starting in July. This is the flagship program for Theopolis where we fully immerse students in the Theopolitan vision. For more information about the program, please see that link down there in the show notes. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this episode. And here are Peter Lightheart and Dr. David Field discussing paths to human maturity. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today on a special episode of the Theopolis Podcast with Dr. David Field. David has been in Birmingham from Oxford, not Oxford, Alabama, but Oxford in the UK. He's uh, been teaching a course for us during Easter term called Paths to Human Maturity. And I wanted to sit down with him for this episode of the podcast and talk through some of the points that he made in the course, hit some of the highlights of the course, and just get his reflections on his experience. This is the first time that he's presented this material to a class uh, in any kind of venue. Uh, so um, we were excited to be the first place for him to put this material out, and uh, I'm always delighted to have David around. Uh, David and I met back in the mid-90s uh, when I moved to Cambridge to do my PhD work. He was already following uh, Jim Jordan. He was a subscriber to the Biblical Horizons newsletters, and uh, I was given his name when I went over as somebody worth contacting. And so we connected there and have kept in touch, connected periodically over the years, uh, try to see David when I'm in the UK. And uh, he's been with us here in Birmingham before and uh, visited Moscow uh, when I taught out there more than once. Uh, David has a PhD in historical theology from Cambridge. And in recent years, he's been devoting himself to study of counseling and psychology. He came to a, a major crossroads in his life and decided he wanted to devote uh, the remainder of the years the Lord gives him to serving the church with counseling and trying to give deeper biblical and theological underpinnings to how we do counseling and how we think about discipleship. So the material he was talking about in the course this week had to do with those themes, and we're excited by the work he's doing and excited that we had a chance to be the first venue for him to to share it. So maybe I've given a little sketch, David, of how you came to what you're doing now, but maybe you could give a little more detail about how you got started on this and what you've been doing over the last couple of years. What studies have you been doing? Thank you. I think the primary driver for all of this has been the experienced discrepancy between what we sing, what we profess on the one hand, and how we know we live as individuals on the other. That's been a constant for 
decades. I remember as a teenager, a good friend of mine and I, week by week, we would say to each other, this is the week for the big change. And by that we meant, this is the week when we want to live with a greater consciousness of the Lord's presence and a greater consistency. But then in addition to that primary driver, there've been a number of uh, moments or periods where I've sensed a degree of, uh, again, either inconsistency or sometimes superficiality in Christian thinking about where you might say discipleship meets counseling meets spirituality. And so probably for about 20 years now, I've wondered about the possibility of exploring Christian counseling. And then, as you said, a few years back, um, there was a particular milestone in our lives that was both unpleasant personally, but a watershed moment. And so that sent me firstly to back to the first thing I said, firstly to uh, what's going on in me in relation to this unpleasantness. And I stumbled across various uh, slightly left field or untrodden paths. And it's not surprising. I know that once or twice in relation to the material that we were dealing with last week, uh, folk have expressed a bit of concern. Are we sure that we should be spending time uh, looking at psychoanalysis, for example, given um, the uh, views and commitments of Freud, who is the father of it all? Or along the way, as I've thought about the relationship between contemplative prayer and meditation, or the relationship between living conscious of God's presence and the whole mindfulness movement. Both of those connections sent me to read some matter in Zen Buddhism. And it's unsurprising, perfectly legitimate, that Christians should think, hold on a moment, surely scripture is sufficient. What are we doing going and spending time with Freud or with Zen Buddhists? But it was some of those things that between about 2009 and 2015, I was beginning to explore. And it was the distinctions that they brought or the questions that they raised to take to scripture, which then I found immensely helpful. I, not to be too autobiographical about it, but I did discover that there was probably something of a, a, a seam or an underground stream of anger within me personally, which because if I put it in terms of Freudian defense mechanisms, my use of reaction formation, that is, if I'm particularly angry, then I'm likely to behave in a particularly polite and genial way. As you're doing at the moment. <laughs> if I'm particularly uh, frightened, then I'm likely to behave with a certain bravado. Reaction formation is a defense mechanism to keep at bay psychic threat. And I began to discover between about 2010 and 2015 that uh, what I thought of as genial and equanimous was actually a cover. 
Um, and so reading a bit of Freud, a bit of Jung, uh, some mindfulness and contemplative prayer, the Desert Fathers, little by little, there seemed to be some emerging uh, common threads. And we found ourselves last week titling the intensive course Paths to Human Maturity. And if I were allowed one single summary sentence, which pulls together the autobiographical that I've been uh, chatting about for the last few moments, it would be this, that the way of the cross is the path to maturity. And I think the explorations in psychoanalysis, applying or having the light of the way of the cross shone upon Christian counseling, makes some of the learnings of psychoanalysis uh, relevant or applicable. That having the light of the way of the cross shone upon the Desert Fathers teaches us something about spirituality, our, ex our subjective experience of gospel realities, spirituality. Um, and so I think, yes, the combination of the, the personal and some explorations in reading and the discernment of some common threads and then the opportunity to try and pull those together last week as something of the story. Mm -hmm. You uh, said that it was the light of the way of the cross shone on or shun on psychoanalysis. Draw draw that connection out for me. Uh, and I'm assuming it's connected with your emphasis throughout the course on reflexivity. Yes. And what you called uh, psychoarchaeology. Yes. But uh, maybe you could explain what that is and then make it the connection clear with how is, how is that in any way connected with the way of the cross? Yes. If I could start with the way of the cross, yeah. that's to say the Lord's dealings with us as he takes us to maturity will be the dealings of, in a word, death and resurrection. But night to day, the let going of self in breathing out and then the gift of new life in the in-breath that God gives us, exile and return, judgment and restoration, descent and ascent. Those patterns of death and resurrection, which we can see somewhat even in the in the life of God, the self-giving of the persons of the Trinity, but also we see in the story of God's dealings with humankind, and then of course uh, uh, at their most distilled and transformative in the work of Christ that if death and resurrection is the overarching path to human maturity, the way of the cross will mean not atoning work on our part. Um, praise God, that's not necessary. But it will mean as we follow Christ himself, who walked the way of the cross and was raised. So there's going to need to be in our lives some letting go, some saying no, some dying. And the Lord Jesus makes that abundantly clear in his calls to discipleship, that if we're going to be his disciples, we will need to say no to self and take up our cross and follow him. You then begin to ask, well, what is this self that we need to say no to or let go of, stop trying to preserve and save for ourselves? 
And clearly, we need to distinguish between um, our, what you might call true self, that's to say, what God thinks of me, and the fact that God places his breath in me and has intentions for me. And that if I'm to have a stable, enduring, coherent selfhood or personhood, it will be entirely because of God's regard of me and my relationship to him. That itself, however, requires a deal of trust. It's the same trust as the breathing out. You don't know that there's going to be a subsequent in-breath. And so instead of trying to safeguard our own self and draw our own identity boundaries, if we're willing to live with the experienced uncertainty and instability, but the objective certainty and stability of having our true self in relation to God, then the other places, the other directions in, we, in which we look for certainty and stability in respect of ourself, they become both obstacles and irrelevancies. So if I can, I will get to the psychoanalysis question in a moment. Uh, but if, if I can give some examples, an obvious one is, if I'm unwilling to relax into God's definition and maintenance of myself, and I want to pursue my own definition and maintenance of self, then probably I will want more. I'll grab, I'll grasp and cling and try and expand or stabilize myself. And I can do that by too closely identifying the things I possess with myself or my achievements with myself or my relationships with myself. So instead of little David sitting here, I now feel safer and more stable if it's little David with his relatively good physical health and his possessions and the things he's done in the past, or maybe people liking me or things like that. And we identify with them. That's to say we make those things part of our identity so that I'd identity feels larger and more stable. But if we look to created things to give us what actually we only find in God, then those created things, good though they are in themselves, have just become idols. And those idols need to be let go. But because I've attached myself to them, then to let go of them is probably going to be painful. So the way of the cross, in the sense of the death of the false self, will be the cutting off of attachments to idols. 
that's an, a, a sort of relatively straightforward example. So, the, so the, and and that is the death the death of a particular version of yourself. Is it because you've identified with these idols, you're attached to them, you're clinging to them, and giving up the idol is giving up who you think you are. Exactly so. Because when when Christ says to us that uh, if you want to be my disciple, if any man wants to be my disciple, uh, then he needs to deny himself, say no to himself and take up his cross. In that sentence, who's the he and who's the self? Clearly, we've got some sort of distinction um, between a what in psychology is very often referred to as a true self and a false self. Mm. And then to get to the psychoanalysis point. Yeah, if I could just just follow up on that. I, yeah. I thought one of the, one of the things that uh, was helpful was you developed the other side of that. Um, because Jesus doesn't just say, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Yes. Um, and that, then you can incorporate, and you can expand on this, but then you can incorporate um, not just some kind of inner core of your soul, mm. but uh, other dimensions of your life, including possessions, mm. into uh, a renewed self. But with, you have a different stance toward those things. Yes. After after the death of this clingy, grasping, idolatrous self, mm-hmm. um, you you may well end up with the very same things surrounding you, but you're in an, an entirely different kind of relation with them. Yes. So this is uh, very crude, and I wouldn't want it to be uh, sort of worked through. You wouldn't want it to be broadcast, for example. No, exactly, as, as an anthropology. But if you do think of, of uh, David Field as... Uh, a domain, yeah. and in that domain, there is as uh, as regenerate, as renewed in Christ. Uh, Christ is dwelling in me, and Christ in me, Christ in this domain, David Field domain, is uh, my true self. And then there is all the the vestiges and hangovers. And, and remains of the uh, old ad, old self, old person, false self that's been dealt a death blow by the arrival of Christ, but nevertheless is very tenacious. And so I've got, uh, if you think of it in terms of a, a house, then the false self has been living in this house for a long time and the carpets are ragged and the walls are mildewy and smelly and it's all just a terrible uh, jumbled uh, squalid mess but the new inhabitant christ arrives then what needs to happen is clearly some cleaning up needs to be done but it's not that every item in that house needs to be thrown on the fire but rather that um, it needs to come into right relationship with the primary occupant. Or if you think of it as two piles almost, um, a Christ true self pile and a false self full of these wrong relationships to things as I've wrongly pursued stability and safety of the self. Then when somebody becomes when somebody becomes a disciple of Christ, he says very clearly, you have to, if anyone wants to be a disciple of mine, this is the end of Luke 14, uh, 
they have to relinquish everything they have. So it's not, do we come to Christ and um, let go of a few things? It's we come to Christ and we let go of absolutely everything. But very often he will say, I'm glad you've let go of everything. However, instead of them being removed out of the, the domain, David Field, they can stay in it, but exactly as you said, in a different relationship. So when you come to Christ, you say, uh, as a disciple, you let go of everything and you say, here's my husband or wife. Here are my children. Here's uh, the rest of my family. Here are my possessions. Here's my health. Here's my job. And you lay them all at the feet of Christ. And then usually Christ will say, good, I'd now like you to keep uh, maintain those things, keep working with them, but in a wholly new way, not finding your security or self in them, but delighting in them for my sake, so that we love all things in Christ and Christ in all things. Charles Simeon, as you pointed out several times. Um, uh, one of my pastors often quotes that, so I've received it from him. Um, uh, sometimes, of course, we may become a disciple of Christ and lay everything at, our, at his feet. And he says, in that case, you will lose your family. As you've become a disciple of mine, um, your family will now ostracize you. Sometimes, in some settings, you might become a disciple of Christ and the life which you've laid at his feet, he says, that's it. You've lost your life as well. But exactly as you say, it's the new relationship that we have to all the things that Christ says, yes, carry on. We're no longer finding ourself in those things. And you said you delight in these things and delight in Christ in them. Also, you find all of the all of these things, you, you still have a house, you still have a car, but these are all now tools, weapons, instruments for the uh, for the kingdom of Christ. That's that's what they become. Yes. Yeah. And and I think what, if you look through that list in Philippians 3 of what Paul gave up and counted as loss in knowing Christ Jesus, then not all of them are reversed. Clearly, the parallel is what's going on with what's going on in chapter 2, where in chapter 2, Christ Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, didn't cling to equality with God or grasp after equality with God. And then in chapter 2, Paul tells us uh, of all the things that Christ Jesus let go in order to obey all the way to the cross. But then in chapter 3, he does the parallel, but in his own life. And he talks about uh, things like circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ. And so he's let go of all those things, but not all of them are taken away forever. So he puts at his feet um, his being circumcised on the eighth day. Well, that's not reversed uh, when he becomes uh, a, a disciple. 
he remains of the stock of Israel, he remains of the tribe of Benjamin, and so forth. And you could take another, very briefly, another example with Abraham, where his dearest thing in all the universe, his whole future there in Isaac. And the Lord says, will you let go? Stop grasping, will you let go? And Abraham says, yes, I'll let go. And the Lord says, here you are, you may have Isaac back. The Lord Jesus uh, lets go and he's raised. Paul lets go of some things and doesn't get them back. Right. But uh, let's go of them in certain respects, other respects, um, their leverage for his apostolic mission. Yes. So to the Jews that became as a Jew, where he's not going to be able to accomplish that unless he still is circumcised and trained as Pharisee and of the Hebrew, the he a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Those are all, that's subordinating this identity that he had to the mission. Exactly. Right? So I asked you about psychoanalysis. You talk about discipleship. Apart from the important fact that you started with, which is we don't actually live this way, that what you've been saying for the last 10 minutes is kind of standard Christian discipleship. So why ask, what would Sigmund say? Right. Uh, why, why bring that into it? Yes, because these uh, false attachments that we have, uh, this temptation always to secure stability of the or safety of the self outside of Christ. Um, uh, we're duped by them. They're sometimes difficult to discern. We live on autopilot or we live asleep. And Freud, I think, is right to say that ever such a lot of our conscious life, our feelings and thoughts and behaviors and relationships are a mystery to us because they're not accounted for by everything that lies above the surface. That there, there are uh, much, much deeper things. And broadly speaking, it's the things which are anxiety generating that we will keep at bay. There's a trade-off we talked last week about the trade-off between comfort and reality. And to, to face reality, which ultimately is God uh, in his goodness and his demands near to us, is uncomfortable. Or even for the disciple to face the depths of our remaining false self is uncomfortable. And when something's uncomfortable, then instead of facing up to it, um, square, we find ways of distracting ourselves or denying it or, or uh, looking away. And the reason that we're a mystery to ourselves is because what's under the surface, what's not in our conscious awareness, functions a bit like a magnet under a, under a, a table where you see an object moving across the table on the above the surface and you can't work out why. And I see uh, all sorts of um, overreactions to some things, underreactions to other. How, how come we can be so, have such intense emotion about tiny little things and then enormous things can happen and we can be unemotional about them? 
Where's that discrepancy come from? Or why, when I set myself tasks and plans, and they're very rational and very good, and there's nothing stopping me actually doing them, do I then go to the fridge or to that other website rather than follow through on the task I've set myself for the we're a mystery to ourselves the that of which we're unaware obviously what Freud calls the unconscious the subsurface that which we we uh, don't even want to admit to awareness that functions like a black hole you can't see it and yet it's got such a pull to it that uh, that which is outside gets sucked up so if we're going to be serious about our um, about consistency as disciples, then we're going to want to understand and follow down as far as we can these mysterious discrepancies. There's weeds on the surface of our lives, and if we just cut them off as though what was visible, what was above the surface, what's in our immediate consciousness was the entirety. They'll just keep growing up from below. And Freud's insistence that what's below is murky and murky and complicated and tangled and extremely powerful and generative for what is above means that uh, thorough discipleship has to go deeper. So how, how does one avoid uh, doing that and just ending up um, in despair? You're, you're, no matter how deep you go, you're still going to be a mystery to yourself. Yes. And uh, you're going to be perplexed um, by uh, the kind of reactions that you describe. So how, do, how does one prevent that from becoming, um, you know, a... Uh, yeah, leading to despair rather than being a, an extraction of something that needs to be put to yes. death. Uh, because deeper than the deepest thing, which you can't uh, comprehend or reach, lies the grace of God. And because the exploration, um, the descent into the depths, is not for the satisfaction of self-understanding, it's as pursuing Christ-likeness. So I don't think we'll ever get anywhere near the bottom of things. But that's okay, because below the bottom of things is the grace of God. And the reason that we're going down anyway um, is not to pat ourselves on the back for how deep we've descended, but just because we want uh, little by little to be as faithful as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you spend some time during the course uh, giving some biblical warrant for that kind of... Mm. Again, psychoarchaeology, as you called yeah. it. Yeah. So the, the objection, obviously, is um, you read your New Testament. I don't see anywhere in the New Testament where the writers say the best way to the path to human maturity is digging around in your unconscious. Um, what was your relationship with your dad? And what traumas might you have experienced at two years old? And what goes deep, deep, deep down? Uh, that's the objection. I think the response goes, well, there's so many different lines of argument, but when Christ uh, in the Sermon on the Mount moves us from behaviors to attitudes, uh, when he says it's not just about um, 
committing adultery with your body, but with your mind and heart, then even at that moment, he's taken us a little bit below surface. Other things like that would be uh, in James 1, that the problem starts inside, not outside. Or injunctions in Peter to uh, love the brethren from the heart. Or when we pray day by day, um, uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And we know that we can, at one level, forgive somebody, and yet sometimes there'll be a lurking, there'll be a lurking unforgiveness about us. And we know unforgiveness is a spiritual blockage. We'll want to, again, not for our, sat uh, our satisfaction or curiosity, but just to be as much like Christ as possible, we'll want to uh, search our hearts, join the Lord in the search of our hearts. Am I loving from the heart, loving the brethren from the heart? Have I really uh, forgiven and such like? Um, and then you could take other angles, which would be this pursuit of a thoroughgoing consistency is entirely in line with the requirement of the uh, Israelites to rid the land of idols. Or if our, if our self is a bit like a house, then to make sure that there is no house leprosy. Or to, before the Passover, to get rid of all the leaven, to search the house. Um, and so the deep search for consistency is all through scripture. So let's say that that's persuasive. Um, what particular uh, practices uh, are you recommending that facilitate that? What, what, what should one do in order to identify the idols yes. and to destroy them. Yes. If you want to clear the land of your soul, right. you want to be the Joshua, you want to follow Jesus, the Joshua, to clear the land of your soul. Um, what do you do? Yes. yes. The single most important thing from a psychological point of view is slow down. The very fact that we, uh, charge around serves our denial, serves our living on autopilot. And it really is the tendency to the quick fix of, look, there's weeds in my garden, quickly, let's just go and take a machete or something or a hoe and uh, deal with them thus. If we're going to get to the bottom of those weeds, then we're going to have to disentangle the greenery on the top. We're going to have to be very patient to follow the roots down as far as we can. We may never get to the very, very bottom of the root. That's not our problem. But slowing down means being willing to notice. And that is one of the reasons that we spent time with the Desert Fathers as well as with uh, psychoanalysis last week. That was a pursuit of the Desert Fathers, to slow down and notice. It's what goes on in the counselling room that here's a dedicated, let's say, 50 minutes, where the counsellor 
is going to be speaking a very small proportion of the words spoken in that 50 minutes, but is going to be providing a certain sort of presence or relational environment to encourage the individual to notice things. And last week, we developed what we called a reflexivity rubric as an example of slowing down. Where reflexivity, if I think about, there's a phone to my side here. If I think about the phone, I might say that it's uh, black and it's got um, a clock on it and it's of a certain age and it costs a certain amount and I'm just reflecting on, on the phone. Reflexivity in our stipulated usage last week was when I look at the phone or feel the phone, what's going on inside me in relation to the phone? And so uh, I might say, I feel grateful for this loyal servant of a phone or I feel proud that I got such a bargain three years ago when I bought it now. And so our reflexivity rubric was both in some moments of quiet at the beginning and ends of sessions, but also during the sessions to invite people to slow down, notice what was going on in their body and mind and heart, be really honest with themselves about what was coming up. So you can imagine the beginning of a session last week, it's day three. It would be unsurprising if somebody sat there and they began to notice and they'd say, well, I'm quite excited about another day. And then a bit of them would say, what on earth are we talking about Zen Buddhism for in a Christian course about human maturity? And I don't, I, I don't like this at all, no. And then another bit of them would say, it was raining yesterday, it's probably going to be raining tomorrow, it's nice outside. I actually want to be outside rather than here. They're just noticing a few things. Um, and we did remark that quite often the less acceptable thoughts or feelings we don't allow to fill our mental screen, but if we look in the corners of our mental screen, then we might say, well, I'm glad to be here for the third day of our intensive, but a bit of me doesn't like the idea of Zen Buddhism being raised, or a bit of me would rather be outside. So it's slow down, notice, be honest, notice some more, and particularly the a bit of me. And by the time you've done that, you have gone down, if you did that for one minute, you would have gone down uh, further under the surface towards the bottom of the root. You'd have allowed the water to settle so that you could see through it more clearly. More than most people on the entire planet do for most days of their lives. So you find a bit of you that uh, is uh, resentful of uh, David Field teaching this course yes. and occupying your time with things you don't want to. So what do you do with that? Yeah. Once, you, once you find that bit, um, you've learned something about yourself. You've learned something about underlying motivations that you usually don't want to admit to. Then what? 
So one answer is to say, uh, good, I've made some progress, and resentment is to be met by gratitude. And the mere act of giving thanks to God for uh, David Field with all his um, uh, odd choices, or give thanks to God that attention during the morning must generate something of worth. So you could just meet the resentment with gratitude. Uh, or, I know in a sense I'm just pushing the question back, you could say, I wonder what it is about Zen, David, the weather, that makes me resentful. Or you could say, are there other things which I experience this resentment, other times when I experience this resentment? And I might even begin to build up a pattern and say, I resent it when I'm asked to think about things which feel unsafe to me, or and or I resent it when somebody is in some version of authority over me and they take me to a thought place that I don't really want to go. Ah yes, and I noticed that that same thing sometimes happens when I'm with a group of friends and, and they go to they start having a conversation about something which is uncomfortable to me. Um, and I feel as if I can't get out of that conversation. I'd rather just not think about that. And so we trace it back a little bit further. What What is uncomfortable about the resentment? Where does that come from? What's the version of, I don't feel safe? Why does familiarity feel safe to me rather than the unfamiliar? Uh, and very often, I know we've not done it all the way with this thought, but you could see where it might go. Very often we will get to some really quite elemental or primary, primal um, anxieties. We want to feel safe. We want to feel accepted. We want to feel approved of. We want to feel physically safe. Uh, we want that optimal balance between uh, change and not change. And to have been brought, not just to the resentment can be met by gratitude, but to the, when I find myself in uncomfortable situations, that's when I am resentful, is to have identified another bit of the land that needs clearing out. A couple of follow-ups on that. One is, you found a bit of you that's resentful of X. Uh, would you say that it could short circuit your pursuit of Christ-likeness to just say resentment is bad? I should repent of my resentment. So bad me. Um, or are you saying that there's the Christ-likeness won't be reached in its depths until unless you try to probe past that resentment? I think that broadly speaking, that's the case. Yes that it's great to meet resentment with gratitude. We'd, we can't spend our whole lives in a counseling session or practicing reflexivity. Mm -hmm. But that if we, if we really want to take it as seriously as possible, we will make space for those deeper explorations. So, and the other question is once, so you, you've described um, uh, basically the work of a spy in the land. Yeah. You're, you're spying out where the, where the, uh, the, you know, trying to get a sense of the terrain and where the where the shrines are and where the idols are, mm. and then 
the spying is not the end of the not the end of the project. You want a conquest. Yep. So so uh, two or three different things go on there. One is very interesting to me that when the squatter, the person who shouldn't be there, um, is spied, the Canaanite, the Canaanite, then sometimes they just run away. They notice that they have been spied and they run away. <laughs> and so the mere act of identifying some of our deeper problems can be, uh, can bring change with it. And that's why sometimes some psychoanalysis and related therapies are called insight therapy. The simple insight um, and the thing begins to crumble in your hands just to pick it up and it begins to crumble. And just, sorry, just to intervene, that part of the part of the message from the Desert Fathers was about confession and that having a similar kind of effect that you confess to your uh, father confessor yes. and just the fact of opening it up yes. uh, exposes it and makes it and it and weakens it. Yes. And 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 then to take precisely that a little bit further, your confession to your Abba, your um, spiritual director or elder, so to speak, in the desert, um, means that you've expressed it in words, it's out in the open, and out in the open, it's, it's cleansed by the sunlight, and the fact that you're doing that in relationship with another human being. But of course, behind the other human being is uh, the other with a capital O. And so, yes, for the spy to spot the Canaanite is great. But um, sometimes the Canaanite doesn't just run away and needs to be dragged, kicking and screaming, to uh, the feet of, well, I can't say the king, but, you know, um, uh, in, in our lives to the king. And so that's why... And executed. And executed. That's why we can't um, separate out the work we've just been talking about from being with the Lord's people Sunday by Sunday, confessing our sins, receiving absolution, receiving instructions, receiving the feast, and being sent out again. We can't separate it out from putting in place external habits, which mean that when uh, thought X comes into our mind, a negative thought X about a person, then we, we develop the habit of uh, giving thanks to God for that person. So Christian, Christian fellowship, well-established habits, uh, being part of the worshipping community, uh, living as consciously and constantly as possible in the presence of Christ, all of those things aren't alternate alternatives to go to therapy. Mm -hmm. um, one last question. I think this is another way of summarizing what you're getting at through the course. Very early in the week, you started out saying that um, we tend to think about discipleship in terms of creed and conduct. Yes. So what we believe and what we do. And you suggested there's a third category that we neglect, which is you described as consciousness. Mm -hmm. Can you explain not only what that what that means in that statement, but also uh, why that why you see that as a third the third leg of discipleship? That's the third and, and sometimes missing leg. I think there's a close relationship between our attention and our self. So if I give you attention, in some ways, I'm giving you myself. It's God's attention to us that gives us our life. 
if he weren't paying attention to us, we would not live. We wouldn't have come into being at all, apart from God's regard. And attention clearly is a consciousness um, associate. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the giving of self, we need to be a attentive. Or back to that idea we thought of earlier on about being asleep. Um, to be awake, that's, I mean, this is just all, all over scripture, isn't it? That um, we're to uh, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Or even though in some ways it's uh, maybe um, much more literal, he come, the Lord Jesus comes back having prayed to the Father and says to them, um, couldn't you even stay awake for one hour? Pray and stay awake so that you don't enter into sin. And so living as people who are awake, that's a consciousness thing. Living as people who are attentive, that's a consciousness thing. And living as people who are uh, alert to what's going on in us and the other and the world before God, uh, that's a consciousness thing. David Field, thank you very much for uh, coming to teach the course. And uh, thanks for this conversation. Uh, it's been a great week and I uh, look forward to hearing more of your studies on these uh, matters in the future. It's been a blessing and a privilege to me. Thanks so much. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.